fellow citizens. Let's, let's be let's be, be bluntly honest. Who's the heavyweight champion of the world? In my opinion, still and perhaps always will be the greatest. There's so much there. Okay, yeah. What are we doing, great champion? You help to unite our nation. The cry for freedom has only sport to pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's, 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 nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. Welcome back to Sports and Society on September 20th. I'm Brad. I'm here with Kyle. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing pretty well overall, and I think it was due to being inspired this morning by something that I'm really excited to get your take on. Oh, okay. And I'm going to introduce it dramatically by just saying the name, which is, uh, I'm probably going to say it wrong, but Pogacha. Pogacha. Oh, yeah. I, you know I was going to talk about this. Yeah, I, I just wanted to go ahead and say that this is probably the most fun, inspiring thing to talk about. So I thought we could just jump right in if you wanted. Well, yeah. It bo- oh, I think it's everything I love about sports, everything that we love about sports. Amazing achievement. Um Tell us, tell us what happened. Well, let me frame it here first. All right, yeah, I got to okay. frame it, and then I'll tell okay. you what happened. Okay, okay, uh, okay. Uh, amazing achievement. Uh, absolute limits of what the human body is possible to do. Absolute heartbreak. Absolute joy. Um, just the story, the way it plays out, uh, everything. But so yesterday, going into stage twenty of the Tour de France, which is twenty-one stages, the twenty-first stage. Is almost always a ceremonial ride to Paris. There's no way, like these best climbers are going to lose time or anything like that into Paris unless they crash. Um, uh, so the last real day of the Tour de France, they come in two Slovenians, one and two, which is fascinating. Anyway, a country like two million people to have the two best cyclists in the world right now. Um, First taste is Primoz Roglic. Everyone assumes this guy's got the race one, leading by 57 seconds. His team has been the best. He's been the best climber of the whole tour. Um, come in and uh, Pogachar, uh, Teddy Pogachar comes in and second at 57 seconds down, which it is a long time trial ended with a mountain, um, which is just a fantastic way to do a time trial anyway. Um, but Teddy Pogachar, who comes in uh, 57 seconds down, is 21 years old. Like, no one thinks he should be this good at this age. Comes in and obliterates everybody. Like, um, uh, comes in, beats uh, Roglic by t- two minutes almost. Um, so flips it to now have a minute lead in the race, which is just amazing. Beats the best, like the second best guy by over a minute and 20 seconds. Um just an absolutely phenomenal uh, piece of work uh, wraps up for for himself the yellow jersey, the polka dot jersey, and the young rider jersey. Which is we haven't had anybody win three jerseys since Eddie Merckx. If you know anything about cycling, Eddie Merckx is the OG of cycling, still by many considered the best cyclist ever, uh, probably unanimously. He's like the Pele of cycling, um, and so yeah, just. Uh, perhaps the greatest single cycling achievement uh we've ever seen so i have a lot of questions one of my first questions was it truly the greatest we've ever seen uh lance armstrong said probably the greatest day of cycling he's ever watched 
that's significant. <laughs> that's very significant. Yeah. Um, I think also I do, I just real quick, I do want to say, um, really interestingly, like what the overwhelming feeling watching it was heartbreak for Roglich hmm. was that this guy had the best team came in like far and away, seemed to have everything in hand and like to watch him suffering. Cause at the time trial, for those that don't know, I mean, you just have to go as hard as you can the whole time. So, I mean, like you're at 180, 190, 200 beats a minute for, in this case, an hour. I mean, you're just absolutely wrecked. Um, and to go through that effort and see him having to do, like he would have been wrecked anyway. And then the emotional toll of like knowing as he finishes that he's lost was just one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever watched in sports. Maybe that would be a good one of my questions. I I have a lot. Do you want to spend a minute on this? I have a lot of questions. I am I am happy to. I could talk about this all day. Okay. Well, then I say we just let it roll because I I feel like if it is truly the most significant moment in cycling, and if Lance Armstrong says it's the best day of cycling he's ever seen, I feel like it's worth kind of sitting with. And I feel like. I, I have so many questions, I, I and they're all connected, so maybe there's not the best way into it, but I think a, an important layer is that the most significant day in cycling happened amidst COVID in a delayed Tour de France. Mm-hmm. So I, I just want to throw that out there as something else I'm curious about, about like how you experienced that and then how the cycling world is talking about it. And then my own experiences of watching the replay, because I didn't watch it live, but to the point you were just making about the heartbreak part of two Slovenians, the layer of friendship seemed really significant. And so I was wondering how you took that in or what you know about that part of it. Yeah. So, um, uh, from that, that second question there first, um, you know, uh, it's kind of unknown outside here, how much they know each other and how much they would are friends. But I mean, Roglic going to shake the guy's hand afterwards was just one of those moments that is like, wow, this guy. And it's one of the reasons that I think everybody was heartbroken. I don't think if this had happened to Froome or Lance, no one would have been feeling that heartbreak feeling. But uh, I think Roglic, even without knowing too much about him, you kind of have just positive feelings about him. Um, And so I think, you know, that just uh, really amplifies that. and I think it's interesting to know Lance was like, I, I wouldn't have fucking done that. Um, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, that these guys are hyper competitive. So it's not like he's, you know, it's hard for me to call any of these guys like good dudes because I think they're all probably so competitive. They are assholes at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, um, uh, I think he's a class act and to see these two folks that have been together now, and I think in some ways for uh, Pogacar to, you know, I think Roglic has to be something of an idol to him to see him kind of break out and be who he is. Um, uh, it's just fascinating. And then, of course, Roglic has got this story about he was a competitive ski jumper until he was like 14. Didn't really start riding the bicycle till after that. So he's, he's not one of these guys that, um, you know, Egan Bernal, who uh, won last year and was one of the favorites this year, um, got talent spotted when he was 10 as a cyclist. So, you know, Roglic's story is very different from that, and that makes for a compelling 
narrative as well. So, you know, interesting all the way around. But, you know, Slovenians, apparently, there are some folks in the press over there. It was almost like mourning that Roglic didn't win, even though it was another Slovenian that won. Uh, it was just kind of so shocking that they didn't know how to deal with it. Since you ended by talking about the Slovenian aspect of it, I was struck by the role that nationalism plays in the story. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know, I would just be interested to hear how you interpret that. And I think part of my intrigue is it in it is the extent to which nationalism plays a role in sports. And so I was thinking about it uh, alongside something like tennis, which it's a big part of tennis but I'm wondering if it is bigger in cycling than it is in other sports. And then also kind of zoomed in what the significance is that it was two Slovenians. And is it as simple as the fact that Slovenia is a small country and that's what we're interested in, or maybe not as developed and rich as other countries or they're, more recent history of uh, conflicts and political problems and everything else. Like are, are all those things like a part of this story? Hmm. So uh, it's interesting. I think in, in the cycling space, um, nationality matters more than it does in other places because you have uh annual national competitions. I mean, the world championships are still a national competition. Mm -hmm. Um, You race for your national team. But I do think that uh, for me, it's largely more unlike soccer per se, where I think I find the nationality, the nationalism of it uh, really kind of off-putting because, you know, they say things like that's a, that's a, a Brazilian for you when someone does right. something skillful or, you right. know, the English that, you know, you want an English midfielder who's a box to box midfielder, you know, these, right. there there's characteristics attached to it. You don't really have that so much in cycling. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, I don't know what, what that comes from. I mean, there, there is a sense that the Colombians love to climb, but we've seen less of that recently because they've just, they're Colombian sprinters and they're Colombian uh, folks of all, all sorts in in the peloton now. So um, I, I find it um, really interesting in the sense that I think uh, uh, in the Slovenian sense, I, I don't, uh, I don't find it as unhealthy as I might otherwise. Um, and I think what kind of to juxtapose it for me, you can look at it and say, you know, here's a country of 2 million people Um which is kind of coming into its own as a country in some mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. Um, and uh, they were able to have this um, and you juxtapose it with the United States where it's not, I mean, cycling is not a huge deal over here, but we've had some significant success and we don't have any great riders at the moment. Um, but also France in particular, I mean, so, you know, 40 to 50% of the Peloton for the tour was French Um and yet we haven't had a French Tour de France winner in years, even yeah. though it's a massive deal there. So I think there's that kind of, you know, this is this is interesting that this right. country is producing this. Um, but I also, I really like the team element of it, which I think too many folks don't kind of pay attention to. But like, you know, to see Roglic's team, you know, he's uh, Roglic Slovenian, uh, but 
you know, his lead domestiques are Sepp Kuss, who's an American, um, Tom Dumoulin, who's Dutch, Walt Van Aert, who's Belgian, um, and like have all these nationalities working together. Tony Martin, who's German, um, towards that common goal uh, is, I think, really compelling. And, and that team dynamic is part of what makes the whole thing so special and that's part of what was so heartbreaking about that final yesterday was that you were watching as wrote or as Pogachar crossed the line they also had a camera on tom dumoulin and Wout van art from you know two of the lead domestiques uh and teammates for roglic who were just looking absolutely cell shocked as they watched the video feed which mm-hmm. i can't imagine what that team bus was like mm-hmm. last night mm-hmm I mean, they've had a great tour, but now it's got to feel like ashes. Right, right. I also want to kind of zoom into the specifics of the actual event because I feel like that's part of the story too. One thing that I got really excited to learn this morning is that Pogachar did not have a power meter on his bike. Or- oh, I hadn't heard that. That's fascinating. Yeah, so well, and so this also zoomed in is to the bike change and mm-hmm. how that is linked to I'm gonna go ahead and try and link into another question too. So maybe I'm gonna throw <laughs> out three things here and kind of see what comes from it because like I said, I feel like they're all related. I think there is something here to talk about in relation to communicating cycling to an average fan, uh and then to the larger sports fan that maybe doesn't know a lot about cycling. And that's something you and I have talked a lot about before, but I feel like all of that is present here because I feel like I could show that video to some friends or people in my life that don't necessarily would really struggle to understand cycling and what's intriguing about it. And I'll admit that like it took me a whole summer of you and I emailing back and forth (laughs) for what came out to be like 150 pages of text to like truly get it right. And to like really get into it and see, see it for what it is. And then at the same time, I still can't claim to fully get it. You know, like there's no way I would have had enough authority to say that was the most significant day in cycling. And so in that way, I think of the things like, communicating the fact of him not having a power meter as being something that's really interesting and a a big part of the story. Mm -hmm. And then also like something like a bike exchange being a big part of the story and it happening on the second to last day of the tour. That's like hard to communicate, I think to the outside world of like, why does that happen? And then trying also to communicate that it happened in a time trial and how that's different than just a normal stage all those things there, but maybe we could start with the power meter. Like, why is that interesting if he didn't have a power meter? This is so fascinating. I, it just makes it all the more impressive. I'm I'm over here smiling so freaking big <laughs> right now. Yeah, um, I'm just sorry. I'm just reading this story here as you were talking, but um, it is. Uh, so it looks like he he had a he had a power meter for the first the flat part, but when he switched bikes, he didn't have a power meter for the uphill. Um, but he didn't have a heart rate monitor for the whole time. So, I mean, he had no idea other than feel what his heart rate was that whole time, which is just kind of shocking. I'll um, also add this. I learned this morning as well that it was so loud for the last 6K that he couldn't hear his team car. 
Hmm. So he had no idea where he was for the last 6K. Yeah. So first off, like um, uh, the the bike change part is fascinating. Um, Lance has been talking about that, about how he didn't think he would do that because the geometry of the time trial bike is different. And so like your body position has to change Mm -hmm. and stuff. I think evidence would suggest it's the right thing to do, but that's interesting. Um, But, you know, modern cycling is obsessed with power meters. And it's, this is so refreshing largely because of how annoying team sky has been. Mm -hmm. Um, And that they write everything to the dot of the power meters, even to hear Egan Bernal earlier in this race talking about how, now team sky now team Ineos, i should say um uh talking about how he was doing the the same numbers he had done to win the year before and he's they're just so focused on numbers um and so to hear this guy come out and produce this absolutely massive thing i don't think he could have done it if he didn't have his power meter in some Mm -hmm. ways or if he did like you just um you wouldn't uh, you know what numbers you're supposed to produce. And so, you know, Chris Froome was always riding to his numbers. Yeah. He knew what his numbers could be. And he he knew if his numbers weren't going to win, then they weren't going to win. But he knew what his best case numbers were. So to see someone come out and just race old school like this, when there's a big debate about whether or not cycling should go to no power meters, period. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think for me, it would make more exciting racing, although I'm not sure – uh, I'm not sure we'll ever get back to that point because the teams and the sponsors don't want to see their guys blow up. Um, but yeah, wow. Okay. Keep pondering <laughs> this for the rest of the day. <laughs> well, into like, I guess to add some context from my point of view, the way I was reading it then was that it was a, to, it's possible to call the time trial yesterday like an anti-sky time trial, an anti-Froome time trial, which if we zoom out a little bit, it is an anti-analytics time trial to some extent, mm-hmm. which if you're a fan of sports pre-analytics, you would get really excited about that. I think to say it was completely that is probably an overstatement because mm-hmm. like you said, he also had a power meter and on his first bike for the flat part of the time trial before he switched to the second bike for the mountain. And it's also true that, I mean, the bikes are what they are because of analytics and Mm -hmm. cycling benefited yesterday a lot because of analytics, I think you could say. So it's like not one or the other, but there is something just really fun about the last 3000 foot climb of the last stage of the time trial was done without a power meter. There's yeah, something well, really cool about that. Right. It is really cool. And I think there's also, um, you know, uh, there's an element of, um, uh, and this has kind of been the element that I think we love to see is that this, what it speaks to to me is, I'm going out here to win the race. And if I don't win the race, I'm going to blow up and I could lose, you know, minutes and yeah. lose my second space. But I'm not here for a second spot. I'm here to win. Right. Which I think is exactly the kind of racing that we want to see. Right. You know, we want to see someone go out there and risk everything to uh, to do it all. Yeah. But I think, I think there's an interesting additional component, which makes me wonder, like, and this guy's 21 years old. So in some ways, um, and we've talked about this a little bit with soccer players, like how they, they often come in and have like this, or 
this is one of my things. I don't know if you agree with me on this or not, but they'll come in, they'll have like five or six games where they're amazing because there's no expectations on them. And then once expectations come in, they become, you know, they kind of reel it back in a little bit. Um, and I do wonder, you know, like how much of that, him being able to do that, A, like I'm kind of surprised his team would allow him to do that. But also B, is that partly being young and being willing to take risks that you wouldn't take uh, at a later point in your career? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a fascinating thought too. <laughs> um I was just thinking about, I actually came across something this morning that was talking about average performance versus exceptional performance and how if you take all of sports and put them all in one pot and look at all of the data, what you see is athletes over a career performing average to what they're capable of in that way, like, Mm -hmm. uh, to be exceptional is just to have a higher average than your competitor, but ultimately you're riding average over your career. Uh, and you just hope that your average is better than someone else's. And it had me thinking about the extent to which yesterday was exceptional for Pogachar and what his average looks like and kind of what's next for him, seeing mm-hmm. that he's only 21. Yeah. I mean, it's, it reminds me, um, of Lance to be, I mean, cause what he just proved yesterday, he's the best time trialer and the best climber mm-hmm. in the world, which, I mean, how do you beat that at this point? Right. Right. That also yeah. connected to me for another question, which was about a lot of the conversation I heard in the aftermath of it was about how good this was for cycling, mm-hmm. which I always find to be an interesting concept <laughs> of that when people within a sport talk about it being good for the sport. And I'm always like, what do you mean by that? Or, and even for Slovenia, like both guys were talking about how this is good for Slovenian cycling and kind of thinking like, where does that come from? And what do they really mean when they're saying that? And why does that feel like something that needs to be said is always mm-hmm. interesting to me. It is, it is interesting to think about, you know, like, what is it, what does that mean to be good for the sport? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I think, uh, you know, the, the, that element of Slovenia is interesting. Um, uh, but I do think, uh, the tour as a whole has to see it be so competitive mm-hmm. uh, is what makes it good. Cause I think that sports that are not don't appear competitive or where you, people don't want to pay attention. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so even for me, like I'm not really going to watch much of the Western conference finals. Cause I don't feel like it's going to be very competitive between the nuggets and the Lakers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just not interesting to watch. And so watching and now knowing that anything can happen on these stages. Right. And that's, yeah, and again, to be the anti-Sky and say, to know that we're not going to see Sky just set tempo all the way up these climbs um, is really fascinating. Um, and I think that's where I'm like good for the sport. But it is, what does that even mean uh, in the long run? What it really means is it's good for bike manufacturers is what it means. On <laughs> right, some that's level. what I mean. Of course, then we start, we're, we're going to start talking about capitalism really quickly if we're mm-hmm. in that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. What the what I'm intrigued to know from your perspective, like what uh, when you how did you see that this popped up? Like how did even how did this even come into your feed? 
I guess I've been intermittently checking on the tour. I haven't watched a stage in full, to be honest. And I think that's something to talk about of how, and we, uh, this is something you and I have talked about before, and it gets to the part of the conversation of cycling as a viewership sport. Mm-hmm. And it's it's difficult to watch a tour. And I think the tour probably benefits from the mashup videos that they make or the review videos are Mm -hmm. in some ways like way more entertaining than actually watching live unless you have the time and the space and the energy and the desire to allow drama to build for four hours or whatever, (laughs) you know, and not everyone has that. And so I, I don't know. And it had me thinking too about, so the two places I go to get the reviews are NBC sports and, the Tour de France's channels, both of their YouTube channels. Mm-hmm. And I always find both of them interesting in that the tour ones are like never all that great, <laughs> but they're shorter. <laughs> they're like four to five minutes. And NBCs are usually like 25 minutes or so. And so watching both of those this morning, normally I only watch one, but watching both of them was interesting because the NBC one just created the drama so much better and mm-hmm. added so much more context that was necessary for it. So, yeah, I, I guess the way it came into my feed is that I've been kind of paying attention and I knew that we were close to the last day. Um, I honestly hadn't even checked in the last few days because I thought it was kind of over, maybe like four or five days ago. Uh, and so it was thrilling to check in and to check in expecting to be kind of bored and to see the most significant day in cycling was pretty thrilling. It made for a fun morning. Yeah. Well, and it's, I think that, um, in my mind, this is, and it's, it'd be interesting to know, um, how much this traces back to the COVID stuff. Mm -hmm. Cause I think that your points are well made. And I think that it's just hard as for someone not into cycling to really understand what's going on. And like, I can watch for an hour and a half and sometimes it's boring and sometimes it's really exciting while looking boring. And Mm -hmm. like the, the differences are sometimes subtle in that in that context, um, but I think what we've seen and uh, and George Hincapie and Lance kind of comment on this as well is that this is probably the most exciting tour we've ever watched. Um, not just because of what happened yesterday, like all in general, the green jersey race has been exciting. Um, you know uh, these. Uh, Wout Van Aert for on uh, uh, Roglic's team has been like this revelation, like probably the most powerful guy in the peloton and just been a monster to see Pogacar and uh, Roglic go man to man up to now, like Tuesday stage, I think, or Wednesday stage was just a phenomenal stage as well. Um, so really, I think uh, all in all, I wonder how much of that is because so many folks came in with fresh legs because they hadn't had you know, four months of racing to come into it. They had a month and a half of racing to come into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is interesting, you know, uh, just different people reacting different. Cause I think there are other folks that needed, you know, four months, like who knows if Pogachar could have done this with four months of racing in his legs. Maybe he could, did this because of this. He only had this much time. And there's some talk about the sky guys, the Enios guys that they perhaps overtrained coming into this. Mm-hmm. Um, because they didn't have races. So they, all they had to do was a training plan and they didn't look very good, um, in some points. So like, was there 
so just there's all kinds of different uncertainties to it. Um, and this, I think, is the second or third year that they've gone from nine riders a team to eight riders a team, which takes away one more domestique to hopefully liven up things. So that's an interesting element. So you often wind up with just like, you know, maybe one team had two guys at the end, but most teams only had one guy left, which made for good racing. Mm-hmm. So it was just a, a, all around a, a, the best tour I think we've seen in a long time. Well, I wanted to give you a shout out, and I don't know if you said this specifically, but I had it in my mind as I was watching this morning that I think somewhere along the way you have said the best way to end the tour would be on a mountain climb time trial. (laughs) And so I want to give you a shout out for that and then also maybe speak to the race organizers that actually made it probably get a major shout out for making it happen this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other part of it that, again, another thing we've talked about before, but the oddness and weirdness of the actual last day, not really being the last day uh, of, of the tour de France and what role that plays in, at, at all. Because I, I think in some ways you can take that if, if someone were to throw that out as a critique that I think that comes across as a pretty American critique of like what we expect sports to be or what we Mm -hmm. expect, not even sports, but how we expect culture and the things that happen in our broader social lives to fit a certain model that you could very easily call just hyper-capitalistic. And of course the tour is hyper-capitalistic, but so maybe they would benefit from a change in that way. But I don't know. I just, I always find that to be a super intriguing part of it all. Mm-hmm. Well, it is. And, uh, you know, I think it speaks to the stuff with, you know, the Premier League, which, you know, started last week, Arsenal, uh, six points from two games, looking good. I'll just say that here. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, I think it speaks to that same, like, uh, if you get into it, like uh, watching a full season that of Premier League, even when it might actually competitively be over, like it was last year in February, uh makes it for really compelling because all the other storylines start to matter more. Right. Um, and so like tomorrow, you know, the race is uh, today, actually the race is over for the green yellow Jersey, but we still have this great sprint through Champs-Élysées. It's super ceremonial from like an overall win standpoint, but Mm -hmm. you know, the competition within competitions thing is interesting for a long time. This tour, we thought, and this last day was not just going to be uh, a relaxing last day because it looked like – so Peter Sagan is not going to win the green jersey this year, but it looked like it was going to come down to who would win in Paris would take the green jersey, which would make it – like those teams would be working all day to set that up, which meant nobody was going to be relaxing. So that was – people were a little stressed out that that was going to be the case, which would have been fun too. But um, I, I just really uh, – there's something – that we as Americans don't understand about pomp and history mm-hmm. um, that, you know, like we're, we go to uh, uh, Monticello and we're like, Oh my goodness, this old house is amazing. And you're like, this house was built in 1750 or whatever year that was. It's embarrassing. I don't know that right. being from Charlottesville, but, um, and then you go to London, it's like, this building was built in 600 AD. And you're like, what? Right. What? Right. It's, right. And so I think that, that's just a different sense of history. And so having that appreciation for that is something that I don't think we, we as Americans really can comprehend, but I think it's something, if you can just kind of lean into it, uh, there's something really enjoyable about that right. aspect of it. Right. I agree. 
I agree. Hmm. Any final words on the most significant day in cycling? Well, I'll, I will say, uh, I don't know if I would consider it the most significant day in cycling. I would say it's uh, the most significant performance we've seen. I mean, there are probably like the Festina affair might be the most significant day in cycling because it's when EPO kind of ended mm-hmm. um, or the day, you know, Lance uh, admitted to things, whatever it may be or, you know, whatever. But uh, in terms of performance, just absolutely incredible. I think at some point we'll see some people doing some math on just what the power numbers he did were. And it's going to be just absurd yeah. to see that. Um but man, I this power meter thing. I I am so happy to hear that. That uh, I I'm really hoping that Lance and George are going to talk about that today because I want to hear what their thoughts are. <laughs> Where are they talking about it? So they've been doing every. Uh, they've been recapping every stage on the Move podcast. Okay, uh, which is both infuriating because they're they're really good at ads. Let me just say. Like Lance uh, re- is the best ad reader I have ever heard on a podcast. Interesting. Um, it, like, cause he's really good. Like he gets all his copy in, but he's really good at like also usually telling a story that you almost want to hear, like, because he's so good at telling stories about things. Yeah. Uh, and I'll often listen to their podcast. Uh, and at the end I'm like, what did they actually say of value in this? And there's like nothing, but I'm like, I really enjoyed listening to them for the last 30 minutes. I don't know what it was, but yeah. Anyway, shout out to Lance for somehow uh, still being relevant. And perhaps apparently a bunch of guys in the tour are still listening to it. Uh Um, Like uh, in terms of, in the cycling world, there are a lot of folks that hate Lance, but I think there's probably a lot more that, uh, they're just like Lance was what he was for that time of cycling. So. Right. Right. Anyway. Cool. Well, I've, I've just talked my fair share for the rest of the day at this point. So. <laughs> no, that was fun. I was looking forward to that when, as soon as I woke up this morning and checked it, I was like, okay, yeah, this is going to be fun to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Yeah. We've st- we've still not tried to publish that book of those emails. We should go back and look and see what. Uh, yeah, it would be. Fa- it, it would actually like be interesting book. to see how we were talking about things back then. <laughs> I want to. I would think they remember that that would that had one of the, the days like that yesterday though because I remember you and I watched that uh, stage where Froome crashed uh, on the and then Nibbly over yeah. the cobbles just destroyed everybody. Yeah. Uh, and it had kind of the same feel of like, what are we watching right now? This is a momentous thing. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> not every tour has that, but we'll celebrate it when it happens. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I don't, uh, I'm kind of thinking we postpone our main conversation. Do you have anything else that uh, is on your mind to talk about this week? No, I don't think so. I it like feels like everything else would be like <laughs> uh lacking a lot of energy, I think, to truly get into. Uh, well, I will ask you um uh if you're watching the US Open or NBA this weekend. US Open, yes, NBA no. And that was actually going to be one of my things, so maybe we can just hit it very briefly, but I have lost interest in it's I I can't help but think it's because they're playing in the same place every day 
And I think mm-hmm. part of playoff baseball is the travel back and forth to cities, I'm realizing. And I, th- yeah, I think all of it, of course, has the COVID layer, but it's, there's something about it that I, and I think too, the players don't seem happy. Mm-hmm. I, they don't seem excited. And I, I, I just keep thinking about how they're living their lives outside of the game. And I, it, it adds a layer for me that somehow, somehow, some way has taken away the appeal. So I, I have not been watching NBA, literally hmm. zero. Um, but I have been watching the U.S. Open. Hmm. Well, that's interesting because I've kind of found the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, I've wondered if it's because of the teams that are out now, um, which I think is part of it. Uh, it's kind of like the NCAA, like those first two rounds are always more exciting than what comes after. And, right. Or usually, except for the last NCAA tournament, uh, AKA the best ever NCAA tournament. Um, <laughs> um, but it is, uh, it is interesting, particularly when the heat start one of those first two games against the Celtics. Cause I'm a bit of a Celtics fan. Um, uh, but I, it, and your, your comments make me wonder, like we're seeing, you know, the Lakers are pretty clearly going to come out of the West. Um, and it's looking like who knows how the Heat have a really good chance of coming out of the East, and those are two teams that are both all about business. Mm-hmm. Like they are, Jimmy Butler and the Heat are not here to have a good time. Yeah, they're here to win basketball games, and that's what LeBron James is here for. Right, he's here to win basketball games, and it makes me interested. Like you know, are these other guys? I'm partly worn down just because of how hard it is to be there. Whereas those that are kind of like, we're here to do a job all the way through. Right. Uh, it's like a contract. We've got a three-month contract to come win the NBA Finals. We're going right. to go do it right now. And I, um, I think that's a perfect way to depict it for me or how my brain has been depicting it naturally when I gaze upon it is that it feels like business. Mm-hmm. And it all feels like this was all done to make sure all those advertisers – and the whole economy of the NBA stays afloat. And, of course, that's not why I watch. <laughs> and so the reason I watch has has gone down and the reason they play has gone up. Mm-hmm. And that combined has made it uh, really undesirable. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I, I will contrast it with the U.S. Open and especially the Tour de France. Uh the joy of seeing fans at the tour was mm-hmm. so much more than maybe I wanted it to be, or even want to admit. Uh, but that that last three thousand foot climb, uh, I mean, seeing the fans just all over the road uh, is, is thrilling to me. I have to admit, and even the U.S. Open without fans, I I still see the players. Um competing in a way that's just different than how I see the NBA players competing right now. Hmm. Um, and I think it has something to do with literally being outside and the different venues each week, I think all play a role in it. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. in a nuanced way. And for someone that cares way too much about golf, like those things all just play a role for me. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Are you watching the U S open? No, I I haven't watched any golf really since they've come back. I think that the the um the social justice piece has been hard for me to get past on the yeah 
on the golf side. Yeah. Uh, I will say that I've really enjoyed partly because Arsenal has won their first two games, but um, uh, even though there's no fans, there's like a, um, I really kind of appreciate the normalcy that I find with the Premier League at this point. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, we've settled into like a new normal where, um, like, and so like, so the Premier League just saying, all right, we're starting our season now. This is going to be a regular season. And so these, and these players approaching it like a regular season and not, you know, they're, they're not playing with fans, but in other ways, it is very much like what we would expect a regular soccer season to look like. Right. Um, and so I find something really nice about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're right, the fans, and there was, so the way that they did it for the Tour de France was that, um, you know, France apparently by region is color coded um, based on inf- uh, infection rates and things like this. Mm-hmm. And so places that were red coded, you couldn't have fans. Other places you could. Um, and so there were there was at least one major climb they did with no fans. And it was it was bizarre. Yeah. Like these guys are so used to being yelled at and people out there. Mm-hmm. And like now they're having to do it with no nothing but the sound of their chain, essentially. Right. As they as they're going up the mountain, which is a bizarre thing, but yeah, I've really enjoyed seeing the fans there. And it just, again, we don't need to harp on this, but it could have been happening here if we had handled this whole damn thing differently, right? Uh, but instead, we 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 have an asshole in the office. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was intrigued to ask you. I thought it might be an off-air conversation, but I think it would be worthwhile to talk about on-air. How are you watching Premier League now that a lot of the matches have switched over to Peacock? And or how do you feel about that? I don't like it, um, but I've mainly been watching recaps at this point, which has also been an enjoyable way to do it because my Saturdays are busy at this point. So yeah, I've started doing my long runs at this point. So this is a big week for me, Kyle. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I've got a buddy who's going to pace me f- to break 30 minutes in the 5K on, on Saturday, which is will uh, be my goal since I started running again. So um, I think we're going to do it, which will be exciting. I love it. Can I get a Twitch stream? <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> Can I – I want to give support somehow. I want to be able to, like, be in your ear a little bit. <laughs> Well, it, uh, uh, it has got me thinking, like, what is the next thing, right? So I'm like, if I can do this, I have to have a new goal, right? So, <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome, though. That'll be fun. Yeah. So Cool. It'll be like racing, which I didn't realize I cared about racing. But now that I'm actually doing it, I'm like, I kind of want to go out and run like a, a race with other people there. Yeah. Oh, I know man. you have conflicted feelings about that, but yeah, deeply. But I also can a hundred percent acknowledge that it, it, it's a feeling to even think about. Like I'm going to try and do something next Saturday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would imagine you'll think about it every day this week. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I'm and, like, I, yeah, I've got my plan, like what right. I'm going to run every day this week and right. stuff. So yeah, right. It, it's it's a it's a really intriguing and fun and stressful, and it like brings up all the emotions to set out a goal like that. Mm-hmm. Which reminds me, at some point, um, it'd be fun for us to talk about Ten Man Elite. Are you familiar with these guys? No. So you should go check them out on YouTube. It's a group of professional runners mm-hmm. who are kind of flipping the squ- the script a little bit on how to do it in terms of they're also 
setting themselves up as uh, kind of influencers in the running game while also being like uh, top-notch competitors, like the best uh, Drew Hunter as part of the team and really the founder. And he uh, widely considered the best high school runner we've ever had in the U.S. Um, So interesting to see them kind of figure out a new way to be a professional runner outside of, you know, going to Salazar and living that, that living like a nut for that period of time. So interesting stuff. The contrast in the cog and the machine way of running. Mm -hmm. But also, I mean, there's also, I mean, they're, they're monetizing who they are and branding themselves, which has weird feelings to it as well. So, you know, very interesting stuff, but also like, uh, I, I, there's something really compelling about watching guys go out and suffer on a 12 mile r- long run. And then you're realizing they're running at like 550 pace and you're like, <laughs> what the hell is going on right yeah. now? Yeah. Yeah. First run back in a while. That one hurt, you know, 15 miles at 610. Uh, and you're like, Oh, oh okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> at altitude, you know, whatever. Yeah. There's anyway. really, there's a hard, I, I can't think of much that compares to it. Um, other than, well, there are other things that compare. I th- it's probably true for playing any sport that professionals play, but running in particular, there's something about if you run a lot and you get a little faster, knowing what it feels like to be at your limit mm-hmm. and then look down at your watch and realize that the best in the world, half what you do. Mm-hmm. And to know, like, okay, it just took me that long to knock off that time for my runs, and I know how bad it hurt and my level of suffering was, I would argue, like, like an average runner can suffer as much as a professional runner. Oh, yeah. And then to know that their time is literally half. Like, it, it's, it changes a conception, in, I think, in our brains of what the human body is. And I think it's mm-hmm. part of the pool of, like, watching professional sports of – there is certainly a, I don't know, playing it and watching it together creates part of the intrigue. Yeah, you can do the same thing. You can like compare yourself on the exact same terms, which you can't really do for a lot of other things, I feel right. like. Right. Uh, yeah. Which, by the way, October is going to be a huge month for running. I don't know if you're up on this, but um, so first off, they're going to run the London Marathon. Um, and it's supposed to be huge because you've got uh, Chip Coat, Chip. Kipchoge um, going up against Bekele, oh, cool. um, which will be like the first time since Bekele really got good at the marathon. They'll go up against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the potential for something really incredible there. And then Chip the guy uh, is going to go for the 10K record, which has stood uh, since uh, Bekele said it like 15 years ago uh, at the beginning of the month as well. So that we could have two like really massive races going on uh, next month. Are they all wearing vapor flies? Uh, some version of it. So I think Chip the guy will run wear track shoes, but they'll have carbon plates in them. Uh, yeah. And I don't think they're allowed to wear. There's like uh, they they're not allowed to wear vapor flies anymore. I think I think they have to do something uh, different. But I'm sure it'll still have carbon plates in it somewhere. Right. Um, so we'll see. Maybe just one instead of the two, but who knows? Yeah. Oh, my. Anyway. All right, man. Well, uh, I'm going to go ponder on running slow and uh, climbing that mountain without a power meter. Damn. (laughs) Good stuff. 
All right, man. Well, thanks, Kai. Uh, for all y'all listening, give us a rating and review. We promise that not every week will be about cycling, um, but uh, we you just got to go where it's exciting. So Absolutely. But y'all have a good week. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, man. To pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's, nobody's, calling, nobody, 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 nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. I was a huge Dikembe Mutombo fan.